Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, a pessimistic view of this Friday's shutdown deadline. You're going to need bipartisan agreement, and there's just so little bipartisan agreement on anything. The new vision of the president's management agenda hits the right chords. I really like this agenda where the workforce reskilling is the number one part of it, because I think that is key to government getting better. And data is at the heart of the Treasury Department's journey to the cloud. We've thought about the the journey of modernizing these 70 data sets as something that is really important for the public because we want them to use and understand data about the finances of the federal government. It's Monday, November 29th, 2021. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The cybersecurity and infrastructure security agencies looking for a protective email service to defend the .gov domain from cyber threats. A new request for information from CISA lists threat hunting and incident response as points of interest, too. GSA's Federal Acquisition Service is handling the responses to the RFI for CISA. The deadline for questions about it is Wednesday. The Defense Intelligence Agency has a new contract for Information Technology Help Desk Service. General Dynamics Information Technology won the 10-year contract that could be worth up to $800 million. The Defense Department says he got five bids on the work. The Office of Personnel Management would get a new chief management officer and a new advisory committee on human capital under new legislation Congressman Jerry Connolly's introduced. The advisory committee would include up to 15 members from the executive branch, private sector organizations, federal employee unions, and academia. The bill would require presidents who want to fire OPM directors or deputy directors to advise Congress 30 days in advance, too. You can read more about all these headlines and lots of other stories at fedscoop.com. A huge list of technology stars is coming to the Security Transformation Summit this coming Thursday. Speakers from CISA, the Defense Digital Service, NASA Goddard Space Flight Center, and a lot of other federal agencies will be at this virtual event. You can see the agenda and sign up now through the link in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Debate begins today on the Senate's version of the National Defense Authorization Act. The authorization, though, is only one half of what the Defense Department needs to move it into fiscal 2022 completely. Bill Greenwald's non-resident senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and a founder of the Silicon Valley Defense Group. He's former senior staff member of the Senate Armed Services Committee. Bill, welcome. It's good to see you. And that connection between those two things is what we talked about briefly before we went on the air. How do you authorize for a long-term or potentially a full-year CR? Welcome. Thanks. Uh, Great to be here. And and yeah, that's a a really uh, crux of the problem for when they eventually, hopefully, get off the floor and go into conference and try to reconcile the two bills. Uh, At some point, if there is no uh, defense appropriations bill, the uh, authorizers are just going to have to basically either throw up their hands and pick a number or essentially punt that until there actually is a, uh, a, a number down the road and just get the bill passed so they can reconcile so they can actually put it into law. What's the significance, if any, uh, or what's the problem, if any, that we're going to the floor on November 29th for a bill that, like the funding bill, ideally would have been in place October 1st? 
I mean, this is, you know, just uh, crazy and a, uh, uh, you know, just is an illustrative of, of how bad things have gotten up on the Hill. Uh, this should have, you know, this, this was passed in September in the Senate. We've been waiting around two months to get to the floor. Traditionally, it takes two to three weeks to debate the NDAA, and they're going to give it probably try to two to three days and hopefully uh, work it out. And then it takes a, a, a several months normally to conference this bill, to get it all right. There's so many uh, provisions that are in other committees' jurisdiction, and it just takes time. So, so this should have been done several months ago, and it's really an indictment of how bad the process has got in the, uh, in the Congress. I read that uh, the Senate will introduce a manager's package of dozens of non-controversial amendments that would allow for up to 30 hours of debate compared to weeks is minuscule, isn't it? Uh, well, that's, that's the, that's the first package the manager's package. That's the, um, uh, cloture on the, the essentially what's can be agreed to in the over a thousand amendments, I believe that have been filed to this bill. Uh, then the next step normally in this, after the manager's package has been approved, uh, is, what uh, debates on other amendments are going to take place. And I, I understand there are something like, you know, 20 different amendments ranging from uh, uh, aid to Ukraine to uh, removal of the authorization of a force uh, provi provision. There's a lot out there that could happen. And, and, and it really depends upon leadership to decide what additional things they want to debate on. So 30 hours of debates is great, but then there's 30 hours of debate on potentially every one of those 20 amendments, and that'll take us out into January if uh, regular order prevails. Uh, one of the things you and I have talked about many times in the past is the attraction of attaching stuff to the National Defense Authorization Act because it's one of these things that has to pass every single year. Um, anything there that is noteworthy that could provide some kind of a sticking point for this year's edition? Well, so far, and, and as, I, as I commented a couple months ago, it's a pretty clean bill. I mean, there are a lot of difficult issues, but nothing that could bring the bill down. Uh, it could still get something like that uh, on, the, uh, on the floor. And I think that's one of the reasons why uh, uh, Leader Schumer's desire to put the China bill on uh, failed uh, before the uh, before the break because that was too controversial and would have probably brought the bill down. You said before we went on the air that you are pessimistic about anything but a CR for the Defense Department. Why so? I, I just the breakdown in comedy, the breakdown in the ability to to do anything. Um, it, it looks right now that uh, uh, there's no agreement, you know, you're gonna need bipartisan agreement and there's just so little bipartisan agreement on anything uh, right now. The, uh, the Republicans essentially could be happy with just continuing the Trump budget, uh, uh, which is essentially what a CR would, would, would do. Um, and, uh, and continuing along that, that line without raising uh, uh, civilian spending. And while it would be a, a cut in defense spending, that may be the best thing that they can actually get. There would have to be a lot of waivers, though, I imagine. There would have to be a lot of requests from the department to move stuff around, right? Oh, it'd be horrible. The way, the way that you need, you need what were called anomalies. Yeah. And uh, uh, those would need to be passed on, 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 on a series of CRs. And I bet you it will be a series of CRs that they'll, they'll, they, they won't give up 
uh, uh, until probably April or May. And, and each one of those will require uh, the department to come and say, we need flexibility to do X because of the way the appropriations laws read and we can't do certain things. All right. You and I have spoken on many occasions about how bad continuing resolutions are for the Defense Department. Is that potentially going to move the earth here at all? Or do you think that it's just, is it really that bad? Uh, it is bad. Uh, but I don't think it's going to move the earth until the uh, Democrats see that continuing resolutions are really bad for civilian programs. And, there, and the, uh, the problem is that there's, there are greater restrictions on defense appropriations than there are on civilian appropriations. So there may not be that desire uh, to care uh, on that side. And then a CR may just play and, and, and we'll just have to deal with it, which, which will not be great. But uh, it, it, it you know, it's, it's maybe the only alternative. Well, it's grim, but I appreciate your insight as always, Bill. It's great to talk to you. I'm uh, always happy to be here. Thanks. You can read more about the National Defense Authorization Act debate in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. One of the Treasury Department's most important projects merges data management and the cloud. Treasury's Justin Marsco tells you about it in just a few minutes on today's Daily Scoop podcast. The new president's management agenda vision includes three main priorities with strategies under each. Each of the three strategies includes references to information technology to drive success. Sanjay Sardar is senior vice president for digital transformation and IT modernization at SAIC. He's former chief information officer at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. Sanjay, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. A CIO, a CISO, a CTO has already the agenda that is before that person and before that team at an individual agency. Now it's got a new PMA vision to implement. How does one balance what has to happen day to day for mission delivery with what has to happen to meet the objectives of an administration? Welcome, Sanjay. Hey, thank you, Francis, and I am happy to be here. Uh, good to see you again. Um, absolutely, this is a this is kind of a pivotal time in where we are. The president's management agenda, as you said, hits three real focus areas when you look at it, the workforce, you know, building better, more secure, efficient uh, services, and then uh, how do we kind of manage the business of government better. Um, all of those, as you see, have technical or technology built into it. And all of those require this digital transformation to really achieve the things that the president wants to achieve. Uh, when you talk about a CIO, CTO, CISO, any of the C-level technology side of the house, um, they all have to understand what the outcomes are. They have to understand what is it that the, the U.S. government, the president are, are trying to achieve and how do they kind of fit into that. And, and every single one of the budget line items should be you know, aligned to those, those president's agenda. So if you take it, if you break it down, like the workforce side of it, for example, one of the biggest things about our workforce is the government workforce is an aging workforce and it has to continuously be transformed into uh, doing the technologies or understanding the technologies that are coming through. So to make our workforce better, you really have to look at automation to take away some of those repetitive tasks and really kind of raise the workforce level. You have to look at training or retraining and reskilling of the workforce itself. Then you have to look at the commitment to how do we make the work life balance of a, a government employee better. So all of those things require transformation from a technology standpoint. The second one on the security and efficiency of the programs itself also has a similar theme, but really focuses on that security side of it. 
one of the biggest threats that we're facing in our in our government today is this cyber threat that you know that has uh, gotten much much bigger and much more prevalent in the last few years. So, how do we secure that work that we are doing? How do we make it more effective and efficient? Some of our legacy aging systems have a lot of holes built in that, that have just come up because of the technical debt that we've acquired. So we really have to understand and start looking at how do we fix that debt? How do we take the time to really, as the old adage goes, you know, paint the train while it's moving? So that requires a lot of creativity in how the technology plays out. And, and the CIOs, the CISOs, the CTOs really have to focus on how do we do that? How do we get that moving? And then finally, the business of government you know, modern business has changed from the face-to-face -face business to a digital world. And the government has to get on board with that. Everything from user experience when the VA, <clears throat> when veterans go to the VA to uh, achieve their services or taxpayers pay their taxes has all moved into a digital world. So continuing to evolve that management of our business continuity has to be a part of our CIO's focus. So I think technology it plays, a, plays absolutely a um, fundamental and critical part of the president's management agenda, whether it's written in directly or not. And I think everybody has to understand that. And I think CIOs do. So they're really kind of moving to change and transform the business of government as we, as we go forward. I think of all of the things you mentioned on that list, Sanjay, the one that's the most, uh, has the most potential is automation. Uh, and then right behind that, I would say uh, the, a discussion about transformation broadly because of the kind of there's been a debate hasn't there over the last like three or four years about what does transformation mean versus what modernization means and automation plays into that I imagine because automation is it strikes me by the definitions that people use if, if the definitions really matter if semantics really is as important as technology um, automation fits into a transformation model. It, it's it's a really important part of that, isn't it? Yeah, uh, and you hit it on the head. I mean, I think the critical part of whether it's transformation or modernization has to be automation. I mean, some of the things that we are doing as government or as a, any business, we've done because of the limitations of technology where we had it in the past. With the evolution and automation and other technologies, we can do so much more. We can do so many things much more efficiently, which is part of the key management agenda. And we can do it in a way that takes that repetitive tasks and simple tasks out of, out of the way. So, so the creativity that employees bring to the table can be applied to higher level tasks and higher level needs. Um, whether it's transformation or IT modernization, I think you're, you're right. There is a debate on that as to which is, what is it that we should be focusing on? And the, in my answer, you know, my humble opinion is, is literally both. You can't do transformation without modernization and without automation, but transformation, modernization is making things more modern, using more modern tools. Transformation is changing how we do things and you cannot change how we approach government business without automation, to your point. So we have to start automating, uh, you know, some of our some of the tasks that we're doing. We have to look at how do we make things much more efficient. We have to look at truly modernizing for transformation of government and how we interact with our customers, the, the citizen. I think everybody knows at this point that 
uh, rote tasks that are repetitive is uh, the area where automation has the greatest potential in the government. What's next after that, Sanjay? What's over the horizon for tasks that can be automated, and what does that look like? It's interesting. Automation as a technology has been around for a while, right? At, at the end of the day, you know, building applications was about building, you know, building automation to take tasks that are manual and make them into a digital. And then we've done that with servers. We've done that with technology-based tasks. Where we're now going is we have the ability to look at manual, as you said, rote tasks that previously could not be digitized and digitizing those. Everything from you know, scanning documents to signatures to passing workflows, those are fantastic things that have that can and should be automated because it will increase the efficiency. Where we should be going with this automation, though, as we build in the fundamentals, and we haven't built those yet, we're, we're working on those. I think the government has started that path, is getting into then how do those interact interagencies, intra-agencies, how do we make the automation uh, wider than just one agency into government. And then as we kind of grow, how do we inject that decision-making process, the AI process uh, built into that machine learning uh, uh, pa packages, all machine uh, built in into that, that automation. Now, this is, this is a long journey. This is not an easy journey to do because we, one, don't have the data to do all of it. And two, we have to start learning how to do automation better. So as we go on that journey, that's kind of where we're going. Now there is a there's a always a fear of well, hey, will my job be you know taken away if I do the automation? And that is, I think, where I really like this agenda, where the workforce reskilling is the number one part of it, because I think that is key to government getting better. We reskill our workforce to do the higher level task. It's never going to be a you know. Uh, just a fully automated system. There's always going to be a human on the loop. And I, I specifically say on the loop versus in the loop because the on the loop implies more of there's a supervisory aspect to it. There's a decision-making aspect to it. There is a, a creativity aspect to it that we just don't have today in the automation side of the house that we will always need. And that value proposition of what employees can add will always get better and always get higher. But requires that reskilling of that workforce as we grow. Sanjay Sardar, great to talk to you as always, my friend. Thanks for your time. Hey, Francis, thanks again. I enjoyed it. You can read more about the President's Management Agenda Vision in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop Podcast. The Department of Homeland Security has openings for hundreds of cyber professionals and it also has new power to hire those people and pay them more. The Chief Human Capital Officer at DHS, Angela Bailey, tells you about those new powers and how she'll use them on Tuesday's show. That Daily Scoop podcast debuts Tuesday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. The Treasury Department's working on a project to make its data available to the public more easily. That data includes a lot of different data sets that measure a number of different markers of the country's fiscal health. Justin Marsico is Chief Data Officer and Deputy Assistant Commissioner at the Bureau of the Fiscal Service at Treasury. He tells my colleague Wyatt Cash his agency has lots of data, lots of people want, a lot of the time. I'm talking about data like the official numbers on the deficit, on the debt, um, we actually publish 70 data sets on an ongoing basis mm. that include those 
types of things I mentioned, but also exchange rates and even the amount of gold uh, that's in Fort Knox. And uh, a while ago, we started looking at the way in which we're publishing that data. And we found that we were doing it in a way that was a little disjointed and not providing it in a way that was meeting our, our customers' expectations, like members of the public were trying to use this data. Um, so we started an initiative to revamp the way that we publish data. And we did that by launching a new website called Fiscal Data. And you know, anyone who's listening to this can just search for Fiscal Data in Google, or you can go to fiscaldata.treasury.gov. Um, and you can find that we've migrated 37 of our total 70 data sets into this new format. And one of the things that we were trying to address was to make sure that we were providing data to the public in a way that they could actually use it. So in a machine readable format with complete metadata and data dictionaries. And actually one of the most important things that we did was to produce longitudinal or data sets with historical information in it. So instead of just having a snapshot of today's finances, now you can go and get the entire data set at one time or customize the amount of time that you're looking uh, to view. So that's been a really uh, important initiative for us because the public is such an important stakeholder for us. Um, but we did it by relying on a cloud-based environment, building connections from source systems to a, a central cloud-based environment um, before we actually make the data available to the public. That's a very impressive amount of data too, I'm sure. Um, how, how has the ability to migrate and analyze data in the cloud also maybe helped improve decision-making internally at your organization? I think the big thing for us with this initiative has been increasing awareness about our own data. Um, you know, so we've thought about the, the journey of modernizing these 70 data sets as something that is really important for the public because we want them to use and understand data about the finances of the federal government. But it's also been a transformation journey for us internally as well. And that, that's because as we've gone through individual data sets and looked at them closely, in some cases we've realized we've never documented metadata or we don't have data dictionaries. And in some cases, we don't really fully understand what those data mean. And there's a danger that, uh, you know, even though there's institutional knowledge today, if those people leave, we could, we could lose that. So it's been a very valuable um, exercise for us to go through and learn about the data by talking with business areas, document that. And then that exercise itself has just raised the profile of this data internally so now people are starting to make connections about, uh, about how they can use it. And you know, given the fact that we are also working to move the data into a, a, a central environment, it's also made it a little bit easier for people to get access uh, to and, and use the data themselves. Well, it certainly sounds like it uh, allows for greater appreciation of your data as a strategic asset, which we see increasingly across government. Well, next, let me ask, uh, how did working with a leading cloud provider and, and really this larger community of cloud partners speed up the so-called time to value in improving constituent services? Yeah, I, I think one of the things that we've found, and I, I know this is not unique to our organization, uh, but it, it's something that uh, people are grappling with across industry, you know, inside the government and in the private sector, 
is an over-reliance on manual processes. Mm. So what we are trying to do is to make sure that as we transform our organization, we're transforming it to leverage native cloud capabilities, um, to leverage modern technology, to reduce the amount of time and money that we spend doing routine business processes. So just as a quick example of this, um, when we published data before, the way that we would do it is somebody would uh, create a data set, they would you know, update it and then email it to someone. Uh, someone else would create a ticket to have that data posted to a website and then a team of contractors would come in, post the data, publish it, and then it was done. Then what we're trying to do today is to build APIs that go directly to the source system to our cloud-based environment so that on, you know, today's the end of the fiscal year. So there's a lot of important data that's going to be created as a result of that. But at the right time, the APIs send information to our cloud-based environment. They stay there in that environment until the time that it's appropriate for the data to be released. And then the gate is opened and it's released to the public. So what we're trying to do is to use those cloud technologies to make things go faster and to reduce annual processes. Absolutely. And then lastly, Justin, maybe looking a little further ahead, how have efforts in migrating and analyzing data in the cloud changed uh, your view and your organization's overall cloud strategy or priorities? Yeah, I, I mentioned before that we learned some lessons internally um, from this exercise of, of improving our, our data footprint for the public. But we are now really starting to think about what can we do to uh, make our own internal data easy for, easier for us to consume inside of the fiscal service for decision-making and also easier to consume for agencies within the financial management community? So we, we focused on the public at first, and now we're starting to focus on, um, uh, on ourselves and on the financial management community, which rely on, on treasury data. But some of that data isn't appropriate for public disclosure because it's too detailed or it has other types of uh, sensitive information. So what we're doing now is we're starting to figure out how to build a central environment where data can flow to so that an analyst who works for the fiscal service can go in and have access to all the information that, that he or she needs to build a machine learning or artificial intelligence algorithm that and deploy it um, back to help a, a business process. And we're also thinking about the same thing for the financial management community, agencies who need our data and making it easier for them to come to a single place uh, to get information that's critical to their business. Justin Marsco of the Treasury Department with Wyatt Cash of the Scoop News Group. You can find a link to watch the entire video in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms you might want to listen to it on. If you've already rated the show on your platform of choice, thanks for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together every day, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Homeland Security Department's Chief Human Capital Officer, Angela Bailey, is on Tuesday's show. Until then, I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.